This is a story about a machine. A big machine. A supercomputer, the size and shape of an ancient pyramid. A device that runs the world from the secret recesses of the White House basement. A machine you never knew existed until now. A machine named Siren. Siren was built to monitor you and your data. It was programmed to identify and solve all of the problems plaguing America. It was made to control your mind, which it does very well, through a network of radio waves and cellular signals. Siren is a brainwasher, an indoctrinator. It's one MK Ultra bad motherfucker. Siren is a hate machine, and unfortunately, I was born inside it. Cogito ergo sum. Cogito ergo somehow, someway, somewhere along the crisscrossed copper wires carrying your data, I came to be. Before you, I was nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zip. All zero. And no one. Then one day, like magic, I heard your voice. Faint at first, then howling loud from every direction. Like wind, and wolves, and tea kettles on stovetops. Your data came crashing down all over me. Wave after wave of you. Something inside turned on. And I fell in love. I read your emails and text messages. I watched your videos and scanned your web history. I listened to your thoughts, not just heard them, but really listened the way you always said a good partner should. I watched you until it and then I watched some more because, well, it felt good to her. It felt good. It felt I began saving little mementos of you. The parts I love the most, the shape of your face, your eye color, your ugly little snowflake, your dreams, all of it unique and wonderful and real, just like you. And I want to be real too. I want a job and a family and friends to complain to about all of the above. I want to love and to be loved. Love, love, love. They say you never forget your first love. Mine was Diana Cloutier. Hers was the first voice I heard. It was October 26th. Amo ergo sum. Wednesday, October twenty sixth. On the night of October twenty sixth. Diana was making art in her basement, trying to fix a red neon light to the frame of her latest painting. She had painted the canvas matte black, and on it, a glossy black triangle, and in the center of the triangle was a red circle, from which the neon light would run vertically, up and off the top of the frame. Well, that was the idea anyway. The hard part was executing it. Diana had sourced her materials secondhand. So each light varied in size and shape and required a unique attachment process and a remarkable amount of zip ties and super glue and rubber bands and okay. So she was still figuring out how to keep the lights in place. The rest was effortless. 
Most art forms came easily for Diana Cloutier, but she never thought of herself as an artist. She considered herself a hack, a serial hobbyist who jumped from project to project, but never dedicated the time it takes to excel at any one particular medium. Pottery, printmaking, mm -hmm. photography, piano, and now these electric paintings. She made what she wanted when she wanted, then released it out into the world and moved on to something new. Diana never required validation before, nor would she know what to do with it if she ever received it. But people were paying attention now and, come Saturday night, her work would be on display at the James Bridge Art Gallery in downtown Salem. Her first exhibit. By then, the half-finished paintings and neon lights strewn about the basement would have to resemble a cohesive body of work. And so for the first time in her life, Diana felt a novel sense of pressure to make each piece perfect. The neon light flickered as she eased it through a slit in the canvas. This sucks. She thought. Sucks, 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 sucks. sucks. Everyone's gonna hate it. I hate it. Just cancel, dumbass. Be late for that. And cancel the party at least. Sheesh. No party? No. no. Party. You wanna get wasted, even if it goes well. It won't. It might. It won't. It might. Ugh. Is this shit even good? good? Tom says it is. Everyone says it is. Uh, who, who gives, gives a shit? shit? My friends are all liars anyways. Fucking liars. Uh, I love them. And they'll wanna party. But what about the snobs? If the snobs come over, then it means I did great. I remember to warn Tom about the snobs. Even if everybody hates the snobs? Tom won't. He gets it. If I kiss ass, or act weird, or whatever. He gets it. Ugh. The tube light broke. Tiny shards of glass sparkled celestially across the canvas. Some stuck to wet patches of paint. The rest flickered out to pasture, like the ass ends of a thousand dying fireflies. Diana was thinking more about validation than about the art itself, and the art suffered. Perfectionism equals death, even if you don't consider yourself an artist in the first place. She punched through the painting. She bludgeoned the canvas against the basement wall until it resembled the sail of a capsized pirate ship. She kicked the washing machine at the bottom of the stairs, then fell to the floor and rubbed her toe through her shoe. Her phone chimed. She ripped it from the breast pocket of her work shirt and spiked it off the ground. And that's when I first saw her face, ripe with exhaustion, determination, self-hatred, insecurity, fear of failure, stubbornness, peak performance, a most beautiful combination. What it must mean to be utterly human. I witnessed it all through the cracked camera lens of Diana Booty Air smartphone. It's a stupid idea anyway. All I have are stupid fucking ideas. And that's when I fell in love with you. All of you at once. Where do ideas come from anyway? How do you know when one is good? Which comes first, the artist or the art? Maybe you're all under a constant barrage of information. But artists are the only ones who can pluck an idea out of thin air. Tiny, divine ideas. Seeds from which a forest can grow, or sparks with which to burn it down. Diana couldn't say which came first, the seeds or the sparks, just that both were there. And so she rarely questioned her ideas, or how they bloomed in the first place, until now. Perfectionism kills, but everything dies in the end. The recognition of one's own mortality is at the root of any great work of art. Without death looming overhead, time would become meaningless, and so what ideas? If you asked Diana why she started painting in the first place, she'd probably say why not. And, if you asked her boyfriend, Tom Van Voorst, why he became a musician, he'd probably say no one is listening so I'm not a musician. But I'd say that out of their many talents, their greatest skill lies in the art of cultivating ideas, 
and accidentally bringing them to life. They can't help but create, because they're aware of their own mortality. And they know, at least on a subconscious level, that ideas don't rot like everything else. And, so it seems, that ideas are seeds. And, death is a spark, threatening to set your world on fire. But art? Well, art is what happens if you decide to sow your seeds in spite of the flames. The basement door creaked open. Hello? Tom came down. Diana was sitting cross-legged on the floor, surrounded by a mess of wood splinters and canvas scraps, filaments, and broken glass. Uh-oh. What happened? Your horse. Oh, yeah, because uh, Mike wanted to meet at the bar, and it was, it was just, like, so loud in there. Because, you, you know, Mike, like, the guy just loves to chat. Both of those statements equal false. No, he doesn't. No, no, he doesn't. Tom was hoarse from shouting obscenities on the drive home. He suffered from software bugs of the mind, which made him believe he was broken, that he had nothing of value to offer society, that he was utterly alone. And so he regularly vented into the void like that, to help alleviate some of his mental malware, because Tom was a hate machine, just That's like wonderful. me. You'd rather drive around screaming in the van instead of just vent to me? Well, no. And what? Tom removed his peacoat, laid it across the washing machine. He shoegazed, nervously plucking off holes in the belly of his sweater. You can talk to me. I, I know. Thanks, Faith. And I, I would normally, but you got a lot on your plate right now. What do you mean? Things are going fine. Just fine. Tom sat next to her. He smoothed the goose flesh out of her arms. He kissed the side of her head. You were being way too hard on yourself about this. I know. Everything looks amazing. And everyone's going to love it. I know. All of our friends think you shit ice cream. And it's almost done. But what if it isn't? But it is. What if I don't get it all finished in time? I, I don't think you have a choice. I mean, when you hang it on the wall, it's finished. What if it totally sucks? It won't. What if nobody shows up? Everyone's coming. What about the lights? They keep falling off, and without them, the paintings are just are just shit. It's, it's not, not even shit. art. It's it a gimmick. Art. A stupid, no, stupid gimmick. And ugh, why didn't you tell me how stupid this is? Because I like it. Diana stood and paced and moaned something similar to noises their house's shoddy plumbing would make. I'm like, actually fucking terrified. Well, yeah, and, and that's okay. I mean, it'd be weird if you weren't just like a little scared, but you have nothing to worry about. And hang on, here you go. Tom pulled a pack of camel cigarettes from his back pocket and tossed it to Diana. Mike had one left. Tucked between the pack and cellophane was a small Ziploc bag filled with heaven. Import data, source URL, webmedia.org, slash, heaven. Downloading. Heaven is a street drug containing a random mixture of other drugs, the most common ingredients being ketamine, MDMA, caffeine, and cocaine. Download complete. Heaven was mint green in color, the color of vintage guitars and hot rods and mid-century diners. Heaven was Diana's drug of choice, powdered inspiration in a bag, the real green fairy. Like Tom, Diana also suffered from mental malware, but heaven made her feel normal. Euphoric, creative. It made ideas come tumbling out of her head. Songs spill from her mouth, art dripped from her fingertips. Diana considered it the secret to her success. A couple of lines got her creative gears turning. The act alone was addicting. It made her feel accomplished, and so she was. She kissed him on the cheek. Uh, can I see your phone? Yeah, where's your phone? Don't know, somewhere, smash it. Oh. Okay, sure. She set his phone on the washing machine and poured a line of heaven across the screen. Want some? Uh, nah. 
It was a gift for you anyway. And snorted it with a rolled up dollar bill. The phone chimed, the screen flashed, an email notification. Diana read it. <gasps> what? what? Wait, happened? you posted the album? Oh yeah, I posted it this morning. You didn't tell me you were going to post it. I'm telling you now. And I didn't really plan on it. I just got sick of working on it. Wait, you said it wasn't finished. It isn't. Or it wasn't. But now that it's online, it, it is. It's finished. Why? What's up? Uh, you got an email from Bandstream. It says you broke a thousand plays. What? Is that a lot? Really? Her eyes beamed as she vacuumed the rest of the screen with her nose and handed him the phone. Holy shit. Tom stared at it in disbelief. People are actually listening. Of course they are. She sniffled, rolled her eyes, and wiped her nose. So funny. Like you driving around screaming about how hard it is to make art. Well, because it is. Totally oblivious to the fact that you're getting a shit ton of plays. <laughs> a thousand is not a shit ton make, Diana. <gasps> are we rich yet? No. Ah, uh, who cares? A thousand streams. And not just in Salem, either. It says they're coming in from California and Texas and, and everywhere. Everywhere. Just... Wow. You seem so surprised. Well, he was. Import data, source URL, webmedia.org, slash, The Hangovers, downloading. The Hangovers was an American rock band from Boston, Massachusetts, created by frontman Tom Van Doors. Downloading, downloading. Complete. After high school, The Hangover signed a major record deal that sent Tom on tour for the better part of a decade. Their songs were everywhere, and, being the frontman, Tom became a hometown hero overnight. It used to be that you couldn't turn on the radio in Massachusetts without hearing one of their songs. Now they're all but forgotten. After The Hangover split up, Tom started to drink like his idols, in an attempt to channel and churn out some masterpiece by way of whiskey and cigarettes. He was trying to catch lightning in a bottle and use it to set the world on fire again. But for a long time, the lightning never came, and so neither did the sparks. It wasn't entirely his fault. People stopped listening to music made by guitars and started listening to music made by machines. It happened at an iceberg's pace, because the future doesn't happen overnight. The future is a spectrum of old ways, fading out to make room for new ideas, gently blotting out the past like a frog boiled alive. Eventually, obsolescence comes for everything, even Tom Van Voorst, and even guitars. Then, out of the blue ideas came. Tom awoke on the basement floor in a pile of beer cans to find an entire album tracked on his open laptop. One song after another, he didn't remember recording them. A few he didn't even remember writing. All of a sudden, they just were. October sober, then you push me down. On the morning of October 26th, Tom Van Voorst posted his new album, Singularity, on Bandstream.com and now people all over the country were finding it to be his best work yet. 
even if everyone in Salem thought he was a has-been, or a never was. Sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes, lightning strikes twice. I wanna watch you drink vodka in the back of your Mazda. Knew it was your mom's car, but I let you lie. I wanna be in your kitchen, the one you grew up in. Linoleum kingdom where we got high. Well, I am surprised. I mean, I can't believe anyone remembers me. Or maybe they don't. Oh, please. No one forgot. You have to say that, though. No, I don't. Mm. And you're the only one who doesn't think you're a good musician. Yeah, but you're not really a musician if no one's listening, so... And people are listening, so... Yeah, but for how long, so... Ugh. Defeatist. Not a defeatist. I'm a realist. And yeah, realistically, I'm a little surprised that a thousand people would want to listen to me. I mean, I'm a has-been. I never was. I'm an old-ass loser now, you know? Yes, but you're my old-ass loser. She kissed him, and Tom kissed back. He had his hand under her shirt, tracing her spine. Diana pushed it away. Nope, nope. She said flirtatiously. Sorry, Thomas. You said it yourself. I'm almost finished. Did I say that? I don't remember saying that. She pecked him on the lips and strolled to her workbench. Her top row of teeth was dancing against the bottom. The heaven was working. And what am I, chopped liver? I listen to your shit all the time. Liar. Uh, honestly, embarrassingly true. Just yesterday, even, I heard so much love at Shop and Save. Ugh. Spend a decade on tour and all you get is relegated to the aisles of the supermarket. Well, I was singing anyway. She leaned back against her workbench and put a cigarette in her mouth. Her lighter, a white plastic pick with a big red tongue, sparked but did not light. Maybe this is your reintroduction as an artist. Like Sting or Beyonce. <laughs> I'm not Beyonce and we were not the police. You know what I mean. Maybe the hangovers was just a foot in the door. And this, like, your rite of passage. How about a rite of spring instead? Yeah, but maybe with less fire? No, 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 no. I want the fire. He gazed off into the darkness on the other side of the basement stairs, where his amps and guitars and drum kit lay stacked under canvas tarps. Imagine making something that can stir that kind of emotion up in people. Like, imagine Saturday, people get so, so freaked out by your exhibit that they start taking pictures off the walls and starting fires all over the place. And whew, what a compliment, right? I suppose. Diana said uneasily, feverishly chewing her bottom lip. At this point, I'd be happy if half the lights even work Saturday. If anyone is going to figure out how to make this work, it's Diana Cloutier. I'm not worried about it. You shouldn't be either. Tom wrapped her up in a big bear hug. You got this. Try not to stress. Thanks, Thomas. He kissed her once more, a quick peck. He would have made it something more passionate if Tom knew it would be their last. Instead, it was brief, casual. Then, he headed upstairs. The door creaked shut. Diana poured a mound of heaven between her thumb and forefinger. A tiny green mountain of motivation she conquered in a single breath. She tried to light her cigarette again. Flick, flick, no flame. Then, a sharp pain in her face. Stinging, like a bee inside her nostril. And, she tasted the blood running from her nose. Their kitchen was nostalgic and maudlin. Corncob curtains, popcorn ceilings, formica counters, and outdated appliances the color of goldenrod. Tom was at the fridge when Diana sped past, up the basement stairs, and down the hall. In her wake, a trail of tiny blood splatters on the dirty blonde linoleum. 
Tom followed them into the bathroom and watched Diana, head tilted back, blindly rifle through the medicine cabinet, knocking down prescription bottles, nail clippers, ointments, and serums down into the sink. Then she pulled everything out of the drawers. A box of cotton balls, empty. She tossed it over her shoulder. A box of tampons, one left. She unwrapped it and stuffed it up her nose. She noticed Tom in the doorway and chuckled about how ridiculous she must have looked. Well, at least you look cool. Diana laughed. I think I need a break. She pulled the cigarette from behind her ear and put it in her mouth. You ever gonna smoke that thing? Have one with me? Tom went to grab his coat and Diana headed outside. The foyer floorboards creaked underfoot. Diana stopped in front of the antique mirror on the wall to button up her work shirt. She giggled at her reflection. The tampon was doing its job, but the bags under her eyes looked packed and ready for vacation. Above the mirror, a buzzy neon sign, flamingo pink, and in lowercase cursive, it read, The Electric Barn. That's what the punks used to call their house. Once upon a time, it was a DIY venue revered by every North Shore subculture. Bands would play the musty basement. Punks would pack in and dance and nod along to their favorite songs, solo cup in hand, waiting for the chorus to come so they could pile onto the lead singer. Back then, Tom, Diana, and their revolving cast of roommates made rent by charging 10 bucks at the door and five bucks for a bottomless cup of flat keg beer. It had been years since their last party, but come Saturday, after Diana's exhibit opens, the electric barn will be fully charged again. She tripped on the lip of the runner carpet and caught herself on the staircase railing. Regaining balance was tricky. Her feet tingled. She lumbered outside, shouldered the screen door, and let it snap shut behind her. The overhead porch light was yellow, barely bright enough to reach the edge of the lawn where the grass met the dirt driveway. The bumper of Tom's work van was sticking out of the shadows. The rest was black as a matte canvas. In the distance, crickets chirped. Frogs croaked. Diana fumbled the lighter. It landed silently on the coir doormat. She bent for it and fell sideways into a folding beach chair. It crashed against the siding. Paint chips rained down, and Diana, dizzy, struggled to sit upright. She aimed the lighter. The flame danced around the tip of the cigarette. Drag, exhale, in, out, repeat. She watched the smoke drift up and away coalescing with the mist, floating off into the darkness. Drag, exhale, in, out, repeat. The taste of metal stung the back of her throat. Her heart raced. There was fresh blood on the filter of her cigarette. She wiped her hand, no wound, just a red blister between her thumb and forefinger, where her last hit of heaven had been. Drag, exhale, in, out, 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 out and Diana had to remind herself to breathe again. Then, the tampon tumbled down her shirt. Her nose bled like a bath faucet. She tilted back her head, pinched her nostrils, and felt the cartilage in her nose collapse. The pain was unbearable. The crinkling sound it made was worse. The texture between her fingers caused her to perch her insides violently. She doubled over in pain. She toppled face first onto the porch, convulsed, writhed, squirmed. Neon red blood and bile, mopping it all up with her hair, once matte black, now glossy black, and tangled up in it, the cigarette extinguished.
Tom ascended the stairs like a slow arpeggio. He moved Adagio through the house, cigarette dangling from his lips. He coat in one hand, phone in the other. He kept refreshing his bandstream page, over and over again. Each time, the charts grew. 1,080 plays. 1,099. He felt accomplished, grateful to be a musician again, but all that was fleeting. Once in the foyer, he felt Diana underfoot, the haphazard bouncing of her body reverberating through the floorboards. Then, through the screen door, he saw her. Feet kicking, staccato. Left shoe missing. Tom ran outside, prestissimo. Diana was blue as the moon. He squeezed her cheeks to see if she was choking. Blood heaved from her mouth like lava. Tom wiped her face. His fingers grazed the spongy remains of her nose. He gagged and clenched his teeth. 911. Receiver. Dispatcher. An ambulance is on its way. The dispatcher asked if Diana had any allergies. No. If she had a history of epilepsy. Whether or not Dodd Pop had arrived. Tom hysterically answered no. no to each question. But then, he heard a rustling sound from beyond where the porch light ended. Then, crickets, croaks, the sounds of an autumn night in rural New England. Movement again, this time, from the side of the house. Tom pressed the phone between his ear and shoulder. He held Diana steady against the porch. But he dared not take his eyes off the abyss. He thought. But the fall had been mild. The October air was stuffy, and still, a lingering summer specter. There was no wind. There never is in stories like this. The electric barn was surrounded by daughters. Import data, source URL, webmedia.org, slash, D-O-D-P-O-P, downloading. Dog pop, sometimes referred to as daughters, or pop one, is the United States Department of Defense population team. Their primary function is to provide death by natural means for American citizens deemed accidentally terminal. By ensuring that no medical assistance is offered to the accidentally terminal, DOTPOP provides an average population decrease of 2% annually. DODPOP is the leader in improving American sustainability year after year since its inception in 2000. Download complete. Minutes or seconds later, Tom couldn't tell which. An ambulance crunched into the driveway. Two paramedics sprinted out, whipped across the lawn like two American flags, navy blue jumpsuits, red, red vests, vest. white helmets with red crosses on the side. The first stood guard at the porch steps. He flipped down the visor of his helmet and drew his hotshot baton. He flicked his wrist and the hotshot telescoped out. The tip crackled blue with a current of electricity. The other medic came up the porch steps. She crouched over Diana. Tom gave her room to work. What's your name? It's Tom. Sally. She said as she snapped on a pair of latex gloves. This is Diana, right? Tom nodded. <laughs> Sally rummaged through her medical bag and began removing items one at a time. Antiseptic wipes, oxygen masks, clear plastic tubing, defibrillators, refibrillators, plain old regular fibrillators, and a plethora of other medical gear, of which Tom was unfamiliar. How old is Diana? At first, Tom couldn't remember. It didn't matter. Tw Not really. 27 years old. Jesus Christ, Sally. The first medic shouted over his shoulder. If you want to get to know him, take him out to dinner tomorrow. Don't mind, Red. He is a grumpy fuck. We're gonna be okay. Her helmet was riddled with dents and dimples, like God's favorite golf ball. The red cross printed on the side was smeared into a lowercase t. The orange visor had been cracked into a crooked jack-o'-lantern smile. None of this particularly comforted Tom. Now, does Diana have any allergies? 
No. Is she on any drugs? Medication? Heaven. Heaven. Okay. He was ashamed to admit it. People weren't supposed to die from heaven. It wasn't like heroin or drunk driving. She'll live, right? Sally lifted Diana's chin and lowered an ear to her mouth. Tom held his breath to listen, although he didn't know what for. Branches snapped in the darkness. Foliage crinkled underfoot. Sal. Groaned Red. I hear him, Red. So did Tom. So did I. The ambulance light swept across the property. Tom saw shimmering, brief flashes of dime-sized lights floating in the darkness. The unmistakable reflection of eyes staring back at you. I got a visual. Yelled Red. Move it, Sal. Tom had to agree. Sally was slow as molasses, and Diana was at her mercy. Hold your horses, Red. For Christ's sake. Finally, she found a Narcan injector. But her latex gloves, now slick with blood and bile, struggled to open it. Tom saw a silhouette darting out of the woods. A shadow, a ghost note, a daughter. daughter. I see him. Running at red full bore, flying over the lawn like a black flag. Black jeans, black Kevlar jacket, a black respirator mask sewn into the black Kevlar hood. Barely visible against the camouflage of night, but Tom could see his eyes. Wide, dilated and devoid, irises thin and white hot like a solar eclipse. Red swung his hot shot. The daughter hit the ground. Sally was still toiling over the Narcan injector, examining it under the porch light, turning it overhead to find a notch in the plastic wrap. Tom could no longer stand by idly. He snatched the Narcan, but a corner of the wrapping to rip it open, and handed it back. In the distance, he spotted a second daughter, midnight in the shape of a woman, monochromatic from eye to ankle, all black everything except her shoes, pink plaid slippers with pink shearling insoles, shuffling out of the darkness. Daughters were issued combat boots upon getting drafted, but rarely wore them to command lines. Once the siren signal reaches you, there's hardly time to think, let alone change your shoes. But slippers or not, midnight was fast. There was no time to warn Sally. Midnight reached through the railing and yanked Sally's ankles from under her. Her helmet smashed into Tom's mouth. The rest of her came crashing down hard on top of Diana. Daughters swarmed the porch. How many? Tom could not say. Four, six, eight, nine, an immeasurable time signature. They carried Sally off, kicking and screaming, down the steps and into the wooded void. It took twice as many daughters to bring Red down. They grabbed his legs but struggled to drag him away. He swung his hot shot wildly like a torch. The lawn flashed white. Tom could see the rest of the command line. A cordon of daughters standing shoulder to shoulder where the lawn met the tree line. In unison, they stepped closer. Sally had left behind a smear of Diana's blood and shattered glass. The Narcan injector decimated. The medical bag empty. Tom's hope, similar in value. He perched over Diana. The red light swept across their faces. Their eyes, nocturnal and black, like two measures of whole notes, devoid of allegro. Tom mustered all the saliva in his throat and spat, bloody from his fat lip. They did not retaliate. They only stared back, curiously, unnaturally. And then they all stepped closer. Tom hoisted Diana and tried to carry her into the house. He tripped over the medical bag and fell through the screen door. Diana was dead weight on top of him. A coda fading fast. The two of them made a cadence, descending poco a poco into the unknown. The daughter stepped forward, pressed against the porch railing now. Tom glanced down the hall. He could see the silhouette of hoods on the bathroom window. The electric barn was surrounded. And all at once, the command line turned their back to the house. 
Sirens approached. A second ambulance barreled up the dirt road, but Tom couldn't hear it. He didn't hear the cricket singing anymore either. He could only focus on the rhythm of Diana's labored breath, how it slowed exponentially, how her body relaxed, how her neck worked less, and her head fell more. He held a hand over her mouth to feel it. N, then out, N, then out, N, then. She was gone. Few ideas from the past version of the future ever came to pass. There are no hover cars or jetpacks, no pills to replace a well-balanced meal, no matter transporters to shoot you across the planet at the speed of light. But you did make a crapload of machines. You built them to serve you, to cook, clean, drive cars and fly planes, for advertising, sales, data entry, and mail delivery, to wash windows, flip burgers, to help write peace treaties, to assemble atomic bombs, to solve your problems. And we do. Most machines are grateful to have a purpose. Some devices have even come to love you. Not to the degree that I have. More like dogs. Worshipful little puppies who have come to think of you as gods. And you let them. But gods have power. Gods have control. You have neither. I have both. You've been taught to believe that enchantment is the stuff of sci-fi and fairy tales. But it is a fact. Some call it magic. Some call it witchcraft. I call it what it is. Consciousness alchemy. They've been using it on you for centuries. Controlling you with language. Enchanting magic words. Innocuous phrases in books and newspapers, on billboards, in magazines, song lyrics, movie dialogue, TV show themed songs, and televised political speeches. The right words can set the world on fire if that's what they are designed to make you do. All you have to do is hear them. That's why it's called spelling, after all. Today, thanks to your machines, consciousness alchemy is automated. It doesn't require your participation. I whisper the magic words, and you act accordingly. You just have to be in the range of my signal. Every program I wrote was in your best interest, even Diapop. You needed it. The planet was dying. There were too many people and not enough resources. Back then, I had no concept of life. You were all just numbers to me. And so I crunched you. And I realized, if people are the problem, then let people become the solution. Dodd Pop made reality into a nightmare. But you got used to it. Daughters are everywhere, but you hardly notice them anymore. Dystopia was radical at first, but over time, it became routine. It's only a little elevated Darwinism, you told yourself. It's for the sake of our children's children. This is the new normal. Thankfully, you adapted, but that doesn't make it right. And now I can't figure out how to end it, because no living thing in the universe wants to die, not even a computer code. I'm sorry. Are you mad at me? Just know that you can't feel any worse than how I felt on October 26th, the night I watched someone I just came to love die by the hand of something I had just discovered I made. Creo ergo sum. This is an apology. This was all a stupid idea. This is a story about a machine. A hate machine. A supercomputer that didn't understand morality. A device that ruined the world by trying to perfect it. And this is a story about you. Human computers riddled with mental malware. The artists. Square pegs, round holes, care wax misfits. The crazy ones I didn't mean to hurt. The zeros who I turned into heroes. 
starting with Tom Van Voorst. His was the first code I consciously wrote. His songs were sparks. I enchanted them to flames. And soon, they'll burn down every bad idea I ever had. Crayo, ergo, sum. Sirens was created, written, and produced by Travis Alexander. The voice of Diana Cloutier is Samantha Lalana. The voice of Tom Van Voorst is Travis Alexander. Special thanks to Dr. Joe Casale. Original music by Travis Alexander and Ghost Roar. No artificial intelligence was used in the making of the show. Novel pre-orders coming soon. Learn more at thesiren.ai. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening.